This is the Theology Matters podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Malden, and I'm here today with my co-host, Andrew Davison, and we're talking on this special series on systematic theology, on its purpose and mission, and what systematic theology is all about. And today we have a special guest we're going to be talking to, who is Janet Soskis. Uh, Andrew, turning over to you, uh, let's talk a bit about why we wanted to bring Professor Soskis in on this particular series. Well, Janet, for me, really epitomizes a way of writing and teaching and the, the sort of approach to writing and teaching that was so important in my own setting in Cambridge. I think about her introductory lectures on figures from theological history, Augustine, Julian of Norwich, um, and so on. But I mean, they were really influential. But even more important were her creative final year courses, third year courses, which over the course of uh, quite a long time were routinely students' favourite things that they did. Um, and I, as a student, took her course, which was called Body, Self and Society. And then later on, when that had changed and there was a, a new one, Love and Desire in the Christian Tradition, when I arrived on the staff, I ended up uh, teaching that alongside her. So uh, topics like body, self and society, love and desire in the Christian tradition, they really showed the relevance of theology for life. Um, and just that the stuff of life is the stuff of theology, all the things that people write songs about uh, and worry about and talk about. These are warp and weft of theology. And they were also really distinctive in how much they were about reading primary texts. These were taught through classes. She used to set us. Uh, texts to read, really extensive reading for each week, from the Bible through patristics and Middle Ages up to the Reformation, generally not very much later than that. And students would give presentations and we'd talk about these texts and it was really about immersing ourselves in the theological tradition. And she was never worried about the rough edges of the texts, you know, the fact that there was going to be stuff that seemed quite alien um, and the fact that they spoke from a different world. I, I hope she'll talk about that because it was really important to see that these Text, you could recognize the Christian faith in them, but also they spoke from a different perspective, and that was what made them resources. Um, so there will be Dante. I remember Nicholas Ridley, the reformer um, who was burned at the stake, amazing sermon by him on poverty. Gregory of Nyssa, always lots of Augustine. Um, and uh, I think right the way through both papers, there was uh, medieval and Reformation marriage rites, which people really loved. And Eamon Duffy used to come and talk about those, which was uh, terrific. So uh, Janet's Canadian, and since her DPhil in Oxford on religious language, she's lived and taught in the United Kingdom and most of that time in Cambridge. She's a member of CTI. And one of the things I'm really interested from in these interviews is how people write theology, you know, their style and even how they lay it out on the page. And Janet's always really pushed her students and, and the kind of guild of theologians more generally to think about theologians as writers and communicators, as having a, a vocation there, really, to write and communicate clearly in, in a way that arouses interest. Um, so I, I admire her own writing enormously. It's always clear without being plain and a real joy to read. Uh, she has a, a trade book, uh, Sisters of Sinai, which is about these two Presbyterian women who went off um, into Egypt, searching for manuscripts and made all sorts of fantastic discoveries. And it's a real breakthrough book into the, you might say, kind of Barnes & Noble, Waterstones, Blackwell's sort of front table by the till. Um, and it was taken up by Radio 4, which is quite a mark of the 
literary distinction in the United Kingdom. Um, and she's got a new book coming out, uh, I guess, late 2023, on the names of God, how God is named, which I think represents her as really, you know, what she does. It's doctrinal theology with real philosophical uh, sophistication, but that doesn't necessarily run along the old tram lines of theology. She doesn't just write a book on Christology or the doctrine of the Trinity. It's, it's often more specific than that and jumping off a particular text. So a really good way into that, actually, if people want to read some of Professor Soskis's work, um, is this book, The Kindness of God, which collects essays from uh, across a decade or two. And they're all quite specific, beautifully written. Uh, she's a great person to have on the podcast. As you mentioned, uh, Janet Soskis taught for more than 30 years at the University of Cambridge as a professor of philosophical theology. And she's now in the United States as the William Warren Distinguished Research Professor of Catholic Theology at Duke University. Uh, with uh, no further ado, I think we should go to the conversation and uh, bring uh, Janet Soskis in. Terrific. Janet, one of the things I know you're particularly interested in, in terms of the future of Christian theology is its literary quality, taking theological writing seriously as a business that is a, you know, a writerly enterprise. And maybe you can talk to us about th this question. I started my undergraduate uh, studies as an English major and then quickly got interested in philosophy and anthropology and and God. And, and so then I settled on... Um, a doctoral topic when there are few interjections into things that happen in between. But I did some courses on metaphors, an undergraduate. Uh, I, one of my professors had been a student of Wittgenstein's. I did a lot of Wittgenstein, and then another had was a writer on metaphor. So I did my doctorate in that area. Um, and uh, at that time, there was kind of still a kind of dominant unstated thesis um, coming down from the likes of Locke and Hobbes, that if, if you couldn't say something literally, it couldn't it couldn't be claimed to be true load-bearing in terms of truth. Uh, and I knew this just had to be wrong. Um, and in fact, uh, when I got to do my doctorate, which was at Oxford, the, there was I went there because it was full of philosophers of language, uh, but the only one who was interested in metaphor was a philosopher of science. So to get back to your question, uh, I thought you can't really write a work on metaphor that's written poorly. So I spent a lot of time, I suppose I was interested in, in writing anyway, but I spent a lot of time making that work work, as it were, thinking about the writing. And um, that has only grown in um, when the question, were, a lot of feminist questions were raised, then I became interested as all women of my generation were in how to respond to this. And the next book I wrote, the collection of essays called The Kindness of God was very much a response to that and wanting to write out of my own life experience. But that's a trickier thing to do than you would imagine because what I think no one likes or perhaps what I don't like is people blurting all over about their own experience. You have to introduce your, enough of your own experience to engage the reader, but not so much as to manipulate them in any way. And so I wanted to write, I wanted partly, I, <laughs> I had been reported back to me that a priest who was a friend of mine and, you know, had said, oh, we didn't think there was anything that women theologians could do that men theologians couldn't. And I just thought, 
that simply has to be wrong. Not that we have different kinds of brains altogether, but there's different kinds of experiences one has and one brings to it, the same as liberation theologians. And, and what might that look like? What might it be to write out of that frame? So I think that my interest in language goes all the way back. And um, and when I when I wrote a book that was narrative, that was continuous with that too. So so this is this is a continual interest in in these things. I think maybe you're referring there to your uh, remarkable book, The Sisters of Sinai. Is that right? Uh, which <laughs> is a sort of dual, a dual biography and uh, something of a, a travel uh, account of these intrepid Presbyterian sisters and their work uh, with, with biblical texts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Indiana Jones in Bloomers, as the publishers were calling it. Yes, I mean, that was a kind of a Buffman's holiday for me because I became so interested in Moses and the burning bush that I went out there to Mount Sinai with uh, a few graduate students and my children at that time and and um, then discovered the remarkable story of these two uh, Scottish twin sisters who'd gone to Sinai and discovered this ancient man manuscript of the Bible lately, lately in the press, because they've discovered a very important um, palimpsest of the earliest map of the uni universe underneath one of the documents they discovered. But yes, so that was, um, uh, several people said to me, uh, well, this is quite a departure from what you've done. But I was interested at once, I was at a book reading and a, a woman, not an academic, came up to me and said, oh, this is quite continuous with what you've done because you've always been interested in writing. So I thought, well, yeah, thank you. That was that was very nice. But if you think about it, theologians have always written in a bunch of genres. And this is another reason I like teaching students with historical texts. There's apologetics, there's rhetoric, there's polemic, there's sermons, there's meditations, there's mystical writings. Uh, and there's, in, you know, in, in the 1950s in the States, there's journalism and so on. Theologians have written in a bunch of genres. And I think most people who are pastors know that this is so. And I think um, the danger of academic theology is to be too leadenly encased in one form of theological writing, and that's not necessarily very helpful. You mentioned the historical text there, and I think that has been the touchstone of your teaching career at Cambridge, the interest in ancient texts and going back to primary texts. Not so much, I think, setting excerpts from large systematic textbooks, and I wonder if you could uh, reflect on that. Mm. Well, I have here to confess a debt to Oliver Donovan, with whom I worked when I was at Oxford as a postdoc, and that's the way he taught ethics. And I just thought it was great. First of all, you've got to get young people, ordinance or students, whoever they are, realize they can go back and read Luther or Calvin or Augustine or Nyssa. They can read them for themselves, and they don't have to know all the languages. They can go back and they can understand these people understand they are writing in a different context, that they're not perfect. They say things we wouldn't say and so on, but still get a lot of right of, of things out of them. So I've always favored that. And so that was the way, um, um, in fact, Eamon Duffy said, I, I was the first one to, to introduce that kind of teaching in that way too, Cambridge. I'm not sure that that's true because we always used a number of historical texts, but I definitely have favored that and find that it it's inspiring for young people you can just see working with 19 year olds reading Augustine's Confessions, they get it right away. You know, this is someone, this is someone like us. And so there's terrific continuity and lack of continuity in a sense of, you might say, the communion of the saints over this 
just reading this, uh, realizing people are writing from different contexts with different dilemmas, it's very easy to think you're the first one to face any problems in Christian faith, and that's simply not true. You're not the first one. You're not the first generation. So I've I've always liked that. And um, any digest is always a digest. And of course, secondary literature is very helpful. But if you only read the secondary literature, it just lacks the vitality of the primary text, which I, I would always favor going to. Certainly, um, certainly, you know, I'd, whenever I'm asked, what's the, what's the textbook you use for this course? None, you know, don't use a textbook. That's perhaps unkind. <laughs> I think that brings us back to questions of, of style and, and genre and uh, forms of writing. And even we could say just what a theological text looks like on the page, uh, mm. that there's a, a certain sort of systematic theology text, which would just be page after page of close typed uh, justified text. Um, but you talked there about being drawn into the, the struggles and the conversations that people have had. Uh, Josh, you're talking about reading other people's responses to texts. And that makes me think about the, the medieval writing and the, the disputational style where it does just look different on the page because it's about mm-hmm. marshalling different voices and responding to them. Mm. Uh, but Bart, I suppose, with his small text, small print passages is is dredging into the history and bringing up additional voices, particularly in those mm-hmm. Passages, and it might seem like a rather esoteric question, but I think what theology looks like on the page uh, is actually rather important. Mm. Yes, I wonder if there's a comparison there to be made with what it's like to read our printed Bibles and what it might be like to read a glossed Bible when you're reading a manuscript, where you're reading a glossed Bible and you've got various glosses down the side that people read it before and commented on things and put in sermon notes and so on. Um, uh, whereas our our books, our Bibles come to us printed and pristine. Now, I definitely think there are different ways theologians let let the reader into their text or let the auditor, and, and I say auditor because the, the best example of this for me still is, is Augustine's Confessions, which the genre of that is prayer. It's a prayer. It's addressed to God, who's the silent interlocutor. And, and Augustine just unfolds himself. Now, this has terrific rhetorical power um, because you have either to think he's the biggest liar and fraud in the world or he's telling me the truth because he wouldn't lie to God, right? So it's 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 not like the memoirs of Paris Hilton or something. He's, he's telling, he's writing to God, right? So we're eavesdropping. And the, the stature of an eavesdropper is interesting because you can go along. It's not abrasive it's sort of you can listen to this and you can think oh no that's not right or "Mm, I wouldn't have done that you know you don't have to it's not propositional it's not didactic in that sense but it's didactic in the sense that it's teaching and one of the things I love about that book is the way his doctrine of God unfolds without being stated like you, uh, you know that God is omnipresent because Augustine God is always present to Augustine at every time even even when in his early years, God, Augustine doesn't know this because Augustine will say, and this you knew, O Lord, and this you saw, mm-hmm. O Lord. So you, you know that. So he doesn't say, oh, God is omnipresent and this is what it means. God simply is omnipresent. Um, God is omnitemporal in the same way. And these are un- unfolded through the genre of the text, really. So that is a text that allows people a lot of way in. And Andrew, you mentioned the scholastic text. And um, 
particularly, well, there's different kinds of, of a scholastic text, but I'm thinking of, of, of the Aquinas, uh, the Summa, um, the, uh, the sort of question and response format. And I always find this, this very attractive too, because he's precisely in that, and I think it was the object of the, the professor, uh, Aquinas in this case, to state a position, the position with which he is going to dissent, from which he's going to dissent in the strongest terms it could be made, and then say, on the other hand, and then state his own position. And I think that allows a lot of space in the text for, for the reader. And I, it, 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 it creates a certain kind of engagement even now. I don't know if we could do that even now, but um, it, it does take perhaps for us moderns a little bit more work to get into this kind of reading, but it's, um, it's, it's, it, it's generous. And you might say that equally, um, I'm thinking of Bonaventure Aquinas's contemporary, but um, a Franciscan, The Soul's Journey into God, that's a kind of a meditation. And that has the same very short but engaging thing as it's been more a contemplative document, but says a lot of the same things as the first books of the Summa does, actually. So these are different different styles, uh, ways that are, are conscious of, of the pedagogical needs. Both of these people were aware of, of being teachers. And that's what doctrine is, teaching, right? So one of the ways in which theology might be systematic is out of an interest to say everything, cover every last base. Mm -hmm. I suppose there's some value in that in as much as it's always worth asking what theme is being neglected and what do we need to bring back into the discussion. But I think theology is also systematic, and this is what particularly interests me, in its attention to how one idea relates to another, how one doctrine relates to another. And in your work on the doctrine of creation, I think this comes up again and again. So I, I particularly would recommend a book that you edited with a couple of other people, Creation and the God of Abraham, sort of my favourite collections. I think it's really terrific, published by uh, Oxford University Press. And there's a, a very strong sense there, in the, especially in the early chapters of that book, that the doctrine of creation emerges out of what Christians and Jews and Muslims were thinking about a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. You don't need to turn to the Bible and find, and God created all things out of nothing, and a, a, a conceptual, rather dry discussion of it. It's really, it comes out of everything that's said about many different things. Does, is, is that fair as an interpretation of the history of this doctrine? Yes, I think, um, um, well, of course, on this, I, I think we're moving away from this, but we perhaps have been misled in modernity by thinking that the doctrine of creation is simply comes out of Genesis and, you know, seven days, etc., which historically was never the case in talking about the doctrine of creation. Um, and also, I, I make a distinction between the doctrine of creation and the theology of creatures, the theology of the created order. but going back to the basis of your question i suppose uh my my own approach to theology has come as um a philosophical theologian what in catholic terms is sometimes called fundamental theology i don't like the phrasing fundamental theology but it it philosophical theologians are concerned with religious language, faith and reason, science and religion, these kinds of topics, they're not fundamental in the sense that they uh, 
or what you absolutely have to get right, but in the sense they run through. Every theology involves some attitude to religious language. Every theology involves some attitude to truth and revelation and so on. Now, when you look at this, I mean, the, the earliest church doesn't write a book of systematic theology. What you get from the theologians is, uh, uh, even in Judaism and in Christianity, is response of the faith community to rising troubles, sufferings, plagues, persecutions, um, and um, and and the holy books. How how so with the doctrine of creation? Um, I I don't imagine that the writers or redactors of the book of Genesis had any particular uh, metaphysics of creation in mind. That, that would be kind of anachronistic to suppose they did. But you, there is the idea that God made everything. God made heaven and earth, which comes in the Psalms and Isaiah again and again and again. And why this is so important is because the creator is also the redeemer. The one who creates is the one who can also redeem. So these two come close together, creator and redeemer. So it's really important for the central salvific message of Christianity, the doctrine of creation, that God created everything. So you can just imagine sometime, and who knows when it was, but clearly it's happening uh, to the Jews in the time when, after Alexander the Great's conquering of the whole um, of the whole East all the way to India, um, uh, some wiseacre saying, well, did God, God created everything? Did God create matter? And you say, well, yes, okay, because... Um, did God create space and time? Because early on, we know that early on, um, uh, theologians, Jewish and Christian, knew, knew that space and time were functions of one another. And, and the answer that they gave was, yes, God created everything, including space and time. So then you have a really a radical doctrine of creation that is not like anything that you find, for instance, in Aristotle. Aristotle Aristotle's God is kind of... Um, co-terminus with 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 what you might call the world you couldn't have the world without aristotle's god but you couldn't have aristotle's god without the world either they go along together that's not what you get in judaism and christianity and islam god needn't have created it's voluntary so you see the development of a doctrine of creation it's it's built on scripture it's built on defending the truth of scripture um uh, and and of course then there are different things that in the christian period um, the Christians have to answer, like, what about Jesus? Uh, is he a creature? Uh, where does Jesus stand in this? If, if God created everything, including space and time, where does Jesus stand? So you, you see these are these these things, and the doctrine of the creation then becomes quite important in the second and third and fourth century in hammering out Christology and the early Christological uh, um, debates in the church, because you have to figure out where Jesus stands, you know, is 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 Jesus maybe the biggest creature, uh, which he would be if if you had an adoptionist uh, view of Christ, in which he was a you know an ordinary person that got bumped up into being God, or, or is Jesus God, God's self, and how does that work? That seems to me absolutely compelling, and it makes me think that that middle portion of the Book of Isaiah is as important for development of a doctrine of creation as the beginning of. Genesis, as Isaiah is wrestling with ideas of God as saviour, good and evil, for instance, uh, and the doctrine of creation develops for as a way of being true to many other things that one wants to say about the nature of God, of salvation, of, 
uh, God's relation to, to evil and so on. Providence, I, miracles, all these things depend on having the doctrine of creation in place. Yeah. And I think I remember in uh, creation, the God of uh, creation and the God of Abraham, David Burrell saying that thinking about Christology was a real crucible for understanding the relation of God to creation because uh, it was an important place for thinking about a, a non-competitive paradigm. That the, I, th I think you write in your new book about the the ultimacy of God not being in competition with the intimacy of God. I may have the, the terms wrong there, but that I think in terms of the life of faith, that has been one of the most important theological points I've ever had to think about. And I think that's, it works its way right through your your writing. Mm. Well, I think it was a big, big revelation to me. Uh, you know, I was brought up nominally Christian, but, you know, meant nothing to me. Um, and uh, had a rather dramatic experience. And... Um, it takes a while for the your theology to catch up to that. And I'm not sure that one's theology ever does catch up or that's the right way to put it. But uh, it has always seemed clear to me in, that there's a personal God, a God to whom I can speak. I don't understand how that is. And I, I just believe and would say, I know that this is so. And... Uh, um of course uh i wasn't thinking about creation ex nihilo at this time when i was 23 but with creation ex nihilo you and, and you can see this happening in augustine's life it's it's a, it's absolutely the transition for augustine into full christian faith um i think as carol harrison has pointed out it's it's not really his contact with the Neoplatonists, which is often, you know, that this was it, um, an explanation of the problem of evil. It's really his understanding of creation ex nihilo, and he understands that God, who created all space and time, is present at every moment to every space and time, and to him in his own life, and to the milkmaid down the street, and to the emperor, everyone, everyone, God is present. God's intimacy is not in competition with the ultimacy or vice versa it's only because god is so holy the creator of all that is that god is fully present to us as as augustine said and then later newman present to more present to us than our own hands and feet so i think that you can see this happening in augustine and it is um it is one of the most important theological uh what can we say theological insights, I think, that, that that we can convey. That God, creation isn't something that happened way in the past and then things have just ticked along with God every once in a while, poking a big stick in everything and performing a weird miracle, which is so much the way a lot of apologetics went, as you know, Andrew, for in the 17th and 18th century. You know, it, it, it's not that. It is this in, in, incredible intimacy of God with 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 creation. So God's ultimacy and God's intimacy, yes, you have the phrases right, are, are one. And the idea of God as being itself or subsistent, self-subsistent being or something like that, so it's had a bit of a bad press, uh, well, actually for a couple of centuries now, 
uh, as being rather abstract and cold and impersonal. But I, if I understand what you, you've just been saying correctly, that that would be to misunderstand what certainly an author like Augustine means by talking about God as being itself. There, there would be that personal and very direct connection and, and particularly the, the word connection, the, the idea of the gift of being and creation in that idea. Uh, am I right that you're rehabilitating this category from some of its critics? Yeah, well, it, it's all, all about relationality, our relationship to God and to one another and to the whole created order. I don't just mean other human beings, but other creatures. Um, yes, I think, let's face it, um, these Latin phrases aren't the natural way you just say to someone and say, what do you think about God? Well, God's, you know, <laughs> you, no, they, they aren't. Um, I think a lot of uh, a lot of the trouble with this very um, formulaic language, again, goes back to what we were saying about textbooks and systematic theology. As I understand it, um, a lot of these, these, there were reductions of Aquinas that were reduced into kind of memorizable form and it's called um, uh, textbook Thomism in the 19th century and Catholic priests were sort of just drummed through it. And you've got all, all these phrases, uh, God is a self-subsistent being and so on. You would take, um, but what does that mean? You haven't taught someone to be a theologian if you've taught them a lot of theological assertions, however correct you may think they are. Um, and in fact, as Cardinal Walter Casper points out, there was nothing said about how God is mercy. Why isn't, shouldn't God be named mercy in this? So of course these, in my view, aren't intention. Um, but I wanted to explain in, in the book you're talking about, um, Naming God, um, why someone like Aquinas might think that being itself is, is the most appropriate name of God. And so I did go into a little bit of an apologia for him in the end of that book. That connects with something I wanted to bring up uh, that I found very fascinating in a video uh, that I saw with you giving a lecture about a year ago in May 2021, I think, on hope uh, mm. around the Easter season. And you made a comment, and I just kind of want to bring it up as a, as a sort of illustration of how systematic theology and philosophical theology connect various ideas and doctrines. You mentioned and correct me if, how you want to put this, but that as, as modern people, and especially modern theologians, we tend to emphasize the doctrine of creation because we think it can sort of be more easily aligned with uh, modern thought, natural science, and so on. Whereas you were talking about the resurrection of the dead as actually being, a, people see it as more problematic, but you say, actually, uh, the idea of, of creation is just as uh, sort of miraculous or difficult to, to wrap your mind around as the resurrection of the dead. So maybe speak to that and how it sort of illustrates how these doctrines kind of fit together. Yeah, no, I'm sure Andrew's heard me on this too. I mean, I just, um, uh, you know, thinking prob probably prompted by the strange piece in Second Maccabees, um, which is a very rhetorical piece, uh, anti, anti-Roman, um, uh, anti-Greek, is it uh, written in great Greek? Uh, and the woman who sees her, seven sons go off one by one to be slaughtered for refusing to eat pork, um, encourages the final one, the seventh, go, my son, you know, will the God who made everything from nothing not be able to bring you back to me? And this may or may not be an anticipation of the doctrine of the resurrection, which we know was debated in 
Second Temple Judaism. It was debated by the Pharisees and the Sadducees at the time of Jesus. Pharisees believing in the resurrection, the Sadducees not. But the basic point, if God created everything, including space and time, then the resurrection of the dead is sort of like a walk in the park on an afternoon, isn't it? I mean, that's not, you can't say, okay, I believe in God who created everything, including space and time. So, oh, but God couldn't resurrect the dead. We don't know what that would mean. Um, And this is just part of the the limitation of our understanding. But I don't don't think that it's possible to fully believe in a God who is the creator in this full-bodied sense and say, well, resurrection is simply impossible. Don't see how that works. I think that's a lovely connection. And one of my favourite ways in which Christian theology stitches together is through the idea of newness and creativity. And you definitely see that with creation out of nothing, with the resurrection of the dead, with the incarnation as well as a mm. supremely new thing. Yeah, I haven't, forgiveness. Seen, I, haven't, I haven't seen uh, many other people mention this connection between creation and, and resurrection. It just seems to me so obvious that this is just obvious as a modern putting these two together mm. believing what i believe about creation there's one passage in romans i think where paul links it but i think much more could be done with it not least because of the way in which it tells us something about creation so it seems mm. to me that not only is the resurrection like god's creative act but the creative act is like the resurrection in as much as it's just this gift this this mm-hmm. this joyfulness this overflow of of divine life yeah. Yeah. so i think we both our doctrine of creation and our doctrine of the resurrection can be enriched by looking at one in terms of the other mm. yeah the incarnation too i think uh, treads this this road uh forgiveness i think has this character also of a superabundant gift and of a, a restoration of, uh, of of newness I wanted to um, ask you about a distinction that you make in your book, Naming God, between the names of God and the attributes of God. Uh, You're partly charting a distinction that arises in modernity between a theology that's worked out through meditation communally on the scriptures and a tradition of thinking about them. And with Descartes, others around that time, uh, interest in them much more purely rational, uh, like unaided, the idea of unaided reason. Where could we get to in thinking about God if we had never been told anything? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think I'm right in saying that uh, lines up more with a divine attributes approach. And you're wanting to very much stress the history of talking about the divine names. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the most significant things that your book does. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about that distinction. Mm-hmm. Well, first, I'm, I'm not wanting to get rid of the divine attributes, uh, if we mean by that, not talking about God as eternal or one or omniscient, or, but um, re- what might it mean to replace them as divine names? I, I noticed, I noticed uh, that uh, earlier theologians were much more interested in how it was we could name God than how it was we could prove God exists which happens to be the project of modernity. Uh, and amongst the many, there were myriads of names of God, hundreds and hundreds of them. Aquinas cites hundreds of them, even from the book of Isaiah alone. So we've got uh, 
Adonai, Word, Omnipotent, Lamb, Alpha, Omega, Messiah, you'll recognize them all, all from scripture. Um, and what happens uh, with Descartes, and here I'm following Jean Luc Merrill, who's a very great Descartes scholar. Uh, he, Descartes appears to be the first one who extracts certain of these divine names from being placed in, in divine names and discusses the doctrine of God on ba based on what could be deduced purely rationally. And he comes up with a small set uh, that become the so-called attributes, um, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent one, and so on. But that is to rip them. First of all, they uh, are not anchored in the Bible as they were. And then they're not in this whole festival or of other names, which they were in, um, in the earlier writings, names which would be not only meditated on by philosophers, but chanted and sung and made in liturgy and so on. So incorporated into the worship of the faithful. Um, in fact, at, at this time of year is about the only time of year that most Western Christian rehearse some of the divine names in that wonderful Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, where we go through the various names of, 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 of God taken from the Hebrew Bible, uh, 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 Rod of Jesse, uh, spring from on high, and so on. Mm -hmm. So Descartes seems to think he can just prove these ones, and you know his project is famously there, prove God, prove his his self, and so on, and um, and that sets a a discussion going. And you might say in early modernity, for people like Locke, who I also cite, there there is an incentive to try to say, well, you can prove what God is like by reason alone, because they've come through not Descartes perhaps, but others of them wars of religion, um, they're, they're anxious, what can we just know it can be demonstrated by reason alone. It's still still very ethnocentric, I have to say, um, the whole project, but, and, and they come up with these attributes. And then uh, within the English um, uh, language world, they become a great focus of debate and dissent and, um, uh, and what they exactly mean. And uh, the true, nader in a sense for them is when they get to become the, the the god of the classical attributes which i've learned only recently uh, i hope this is true was coined by the process theologians as a term of abuse because of course the process theologians completely thought this was a horrible god that we shouldn't worship and that's been um a, a familiar strain this horrible god of the attributes that we shouldn't worship but uh well, is it really the case that Christians prior to our own time worshipped a God who was just a menacing guy with a big stick? Um, and how, if we think so, what do we think of Augustine um, beginning his confessions by talking about God in the most intimate terms of love and address and kindness and heartfeltness and also omnipotent, omniscient, eternal? You either like he doesn't notice there's a strain between his metaphysics, his predications from metaphysics and those from scripture, or he thinks they're the same thing. But of course, he thought they were the same thing. And so the book unfolds, unfolds from that. So I'm not, as it were, I'm not trying to kill the attributes, but rather replace them. If you, you think about it, attributes already, I think is misguiding as a term because attributes suggest qualities someone has. So someone might be six foot two, someone might have red hair, whatever. Whereas names are relational. Names are used for calling to, for calling. You know, there's ambiguity in most European and antique languages um, 
you call someone a name, Fred or, or David or Josh or Andrew, and you call someone by their name. So calling has that responsive nature in it. And so names is a much broader category. Names, names are, and we use ma- names for many, many things, and they're always performative. So the book is called Naming God, and I really want it to be about divine naming. Not divine names uh, in the sense that I don't ex- I, I don't really attempt to catalog all the divine names one couldn't. And indeed, that's a project for prayer and the church and all kinds of things. It's not a static, static block mm. of names. But naming, to understand naming as, as this process of being in relation to God and to each other through call and response. If I understand what you've just said, in talking about replacing the attributes, this is again very much a verb. Uh, it's not about setting them aside. It's about replacing them within their natural territory, which is alongside all the other scriptural names where they'll be renewed by their company. And, and that's true of being, of calling of being itself as well. Yes. Yeah. This this uh, strikes a real chord with me. I think about uh, teaching doctrine of God and I, I usually facetiously make a distinction between boring and interesting uh, names of God or, or attributes. You know, I say nobody really ever sold everything that they owned and went off to uh, to tend the sick because they felt they encountered God who was omniscient or omnipresent or something like that. But that God might be mercy, love, beauty, mm-hmm. truth, goodness. Mm-hmm. Uh, these these seem to pull on people's heartstrings. Mm-hmm. It's not that those other things aren't true. It's just that. Uh, the things that have had the the biggest billing are just mm. not really very representative of the tradition earlier on. Yes, and we need to, you, you know, what's interesting in going through, I got very interested in the history of meditation on the divine names. And of course, the first thing, all these people, whether it's Augustine or Philo or, or Anissa, um, say is, is God can't be named by us. You know, the, why not? And this is connected, as you know, with the doctrine of creation, because God is the creator of space and time. All our language is for spatio-temporal items. Uh, it's all framed within. That's the only place we locus we have for language. So it, it's strictly speaking inadequate for God, who can't be classed in our terms. So we we can't name God. But Philo's very interested on this, and I think he sets the ball rolling in a way. Philo, a Jewish thinker, who's very influential on the Christians. But he says, well, yet, yeah, but we must have names for God. Uh, why? Because in Hebrew, to call upon the name of God, the Lord, that's an idiom for prayer. To to pray is to call upon the name of the Lord. So so fortunately, Philo says, God has given us names in scripture by which we can call upon him. And so that's why you see these people returning again and again. Pseudo-Dionysius is most explicit about this. All the names must come from scripture. I mean, I think he's too too restrictive on that, but that's another question. It's a lovely theme in your book, the idea of the names as a divine gift mm. comes in the beginning and the end, I think. Maybe a, a, another point kind of related that I wanted to throw out in terms of the kind of the Cambridge approach, the historical approach is the way in which it involves a reflection on Christian, Jewish and Islamic thought in your work. Mm-hmm. Maybe speak to that a bit and, and also how that might relate to the philosophical theology versus systematic theology uh, framing. Mm. You're working in Christian theology, but you're also talking historically about how some of these sources uh, appear in Jewish thought as well as in Islam. Uh, yeah, that, that brings me, you know, one, so one thing I, I wanted to say that another thing that's been very important to me 
I did actually do a master's in biblical studies between my undergraduate degree and, and my doctoral studies. And uh, one thing that's been very important to me um, was to bring philosophy of religion and biblical studies closer together. And of course, philosophy of language, which was the main way I was trained, is a very natural way to do this. Mm -hmm. But um, I think sometimes these two can fall apart. I think it's better now than, than it was been in some past eras. Um, but uh, yes, I, and uh, with that in place, uh, what we know about Christian origins, what we know about Second Temple Judaism, what we know about you know wonderful uh, work by people like Richard Baucom and um, and so on, uh, uh, Tom Wright, how Jesus came to be called God, this kind of thing. These these are all things that Christians should know and understand how deeply Jewish Christianity is. And so that I don't know whether this would have come out so strongly in a book on another theme, but um, on this theme of naming God, there was such a correspondence. Uh, and of course, um, uh, the, the, the tradition of meditating on the 99 beautiful names of God is particularly strong in Islam. Sadly, I don't have Arabic and I simply don't have the competence. I didn't address that in the book. I didn't mention it's here. Go and look at it. But People like David Burrell have looked at it. Um, but the, the tying this all to is the doctrine of creation that you see the doctrine of creation ex nihilo is the only doctrine that uh, Maimonides in the Middle Ages thought that all three of these religions had in common. And, and that's the, 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 the grounding for the reflection on the naming and the unnameability of God, as God is creator of everything, all our languages, human language tied to this spatio-temporality and how can God be named? So I, I think I found there were a number of the Jewish writers, historical and modern. Um, Philo, Philo was really important. And I, I, if I can put Philo in more people's maps, I'd be very glad in this book. Um, but also people who who are really important in modernity, Buber and Rosenzweig and, mm -hmm. and contemporary writers as well. Just to put a sort of clarification on that the book we're talking about is naming god which is going to be published by cambridge university press uh, in 2023 and we very much want to recommend that book and fascinating text that's going to have a lot of impact uh, andrew kind of looking at the clock i was wondering if we could go down to the on that point to the kind of final general questions we had maybe i'll just go ahead and give the one one of which is so for someone who's starting out reading theology, whether it's systematic or doctrinal theology, what would you recommend they start with? I would recommend they start with something that interests them. And um, of course, that's hard, but you have to come in your own way. And, and so find something that interests you. And it, it, could be, it could be fiction or it could be a more popular book. I think the first I, I started reading, I mean, I, thought, I think I started with the metaphysical poets, and then I read Thomas Akempis, and then I started reading books by Dominicans like Gerald Van. I just found them, and they were Dominicans writing in the 1930s in the UK. They were using a lot of literary texts and so on. But, you know, those are just ways in. I think if you find your your own way in, most people have most people with a Christian life have a, something that concerns and interests them. And it, it could be a work of fiction, but some people will be absolutely gripped. And I found this when I was writing Sisters of Sana. Some people are absolutely intensely gripped 
by the whole question of ancient manuscripts and the nature of the gospels and where did they come from? That's right. Other people are really gripped by um, environmental issues. I think that's true of a lot of young people today. And, and that will be their way in. And other people, and not everyone likes um, philosophical theology. You know, I, I've had to learn that over the years. That, but that's something that appeals to me. So I think it, it, there isn't one answer to that, that, that just don't be afraid to follow your own nose would be what I would say. Actually, on that point, let me ask one more question, uh, because I'm very interested sort of in your own, we were talking about the, the reading on the page, in your own reading habits, in a sense. I mean, and thinking about how rich the tradition is, how many sources there are, how many sort of rabbit holes one could jump down. How do you go about choosing what you're going to sort of pay attention to next? Yeah. Even just well, from day to day, I could okay, I could say I'm going to sit here and read a Thomas Aquinas right now, or I'm going to read this. How do we decide? Well, I, you know, I don't know if this is right, but I find my own reading is always driven by what I'm really interested in at the time. So I don't just sit down and think, oh, I think I'll read Thomas Aquinas. I, I become very interested in certain questions in the Summa, and I read those parts of the Summa. Um, I have, you know, done things that have been different. I've been in a book club reading Ma Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, and, and so on. But I find that stuff really sticks with me if I'm reading it with a purpose. But then I always find I'm being interested in something um, that I haven't read. I haven't read Piers Plowman. Oh, no, I really haven't. So now I'm going to go and read that. I've just ordered a copy. So um, I, I, I think that uh, the first thing to say, though, is you can't read everything. No one has read everything. And what a bore they would be if they had. So, you know, don't worry about not having read anything. How could you? do that you you couldn't possibly um it would just be paralyzing now that perhaps maybe not much help but you know oh, you have to, again maybe it's a, a version of the, uh, the question about where do you start with theology start with what interests you follow what interests you that seems to me to be the most productive and and in teaching sort of research students the, the same thing that, that they have to it's sort of, sort of like i don't know i've never done this and um, when you, it must be the case, if you have hunting dogs, you train them to smell the scent and you suddenly realize they've got it in their way. And you can sort of see that with the students suddenly, wow. And maybe lots of us have that experience in our old educational history, maybe in primary school, maybe in high school, that suddenly you got it. Wow, this is really interesting. And you can take off. Uh, that's Simone Vi coming in here, you know, a guide to good studies. Mm. That's a, a fascinating recommendation, I think, to close with. Uh, I personally want to thank you for being on on this podcast that uh, Andrew Davison and I are doing. So, so thank you so much, Janet Saskas and Andrew, uh, over to you. Yes, thank you uh, very much. Uh, it's been a joy to uh, have you with us today and we're grateful for the ways in which you've contributed to Christian theology um, in, in recent decades. And we uh, really want to commend this new book, uh, Naming God, uh, which will be published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you both.